You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Hello. <laughs> it is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you all here this evening. Um, I think that is one of the wa- longest walks of my life there. Um, we call St. Pete's a triple threat because you've got Mr. William Traub, Sinclair Ferguson, and David Robertson. So if I look up and see one of them shaking their heads, you might see a Chris-shaped hole in the wall as I'm <laughs> legging it back to Inverness. But if you could turn with me now to 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is where we're going to spend our time studying God's Word this evening. Let us read together the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now Samuel grew old. He appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonesty and gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you now. Now listen to them and warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses and they will run in the front of his chariots. Some will be signed as commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive gloves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen." But the Lord 
will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to their own town. Amen, and may God bless that public reading of his most holy word. On the 5th of May this week, we all uh, voted for who would represent us in our parliament. And I would hope that we looked at these candidates and we looked at their character, we looked at what they had to offer, and we assessed, are they wise? Are they just? Are they fair? Are these the sort of people that we want to be in this position? Are they of a high ethical standard? Or ideally, are they beyond corruption? We want our MPs and our SMPs to stand for something meaningful, don't we? We want them, we want to be able to trust them to do what is best for the people rather than what is best for their agenda. We want them to have courage in this day to stand for truth and justice. And as I was thinking on these things, I read a great clip from an American senator who said this about leaders. Courage is like a muscle. The more we exercise it, the stronger it gets. I sometimes worry that our collective courage is growing weaker from disuse. We don't demand it from our leaders, and our leaders do not demand it from us. This courage deficit is both our problem and our fault. And as a result, too many leaders in the public and private sector lack the courage necessary to honor their obligations to others and to uphold essential values of leadership. Here tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have men who are not upholding the essential values that God had given them. They are not upholding the role that God had delegated them. And because of this, the elders approach Elijah with a, sorry, Samuel with a radical scheme. And we see that they come before Samuel because as uh, verse 1 opens, Samuel had grown old. Even as the elders approach Samuel, the first thing they say is, you are old. Uh, it's quite an abrupt way to approach someone. But they were worried about the future generation that was to come through. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 4, we realize that Eli, who was the old prophet, had become old and actually he had failed. He had fell from grace in his old age. So these radical elders of Israel are wanting Samuel to put things in place to protect them. And Samuel, the old prophet, and Eli, the old priest, also share something else in common. And unfortunately, this connection is not a favorable one. The connection that they have here is the moral failure of their children. You see, Eli's sons were priests in Shiloh. We read that at the start of this book. 
And part of the priestly role was to intercede for the people in the sacrificial system. And while they were supposed to do that, every sacrifice that came before them, they were supposed to boil it up, get a fork, and put it into the water as it was boiling. And what they lifted out was their portion. It was a simple act of trusting in God would provide for them. But Eli's sons were corrupt in this process. And they were taking the fillet cut out of every bit of sacrifice. And what they were handing to the Lord was the leftovers, the scraps. And this had agitated the people. And here in this chapter, we have Samuel's sons who had become judges. We find out their names are Joel and Abijah. And although they were not priests and interceded in that role as a priest, they were judges to dispense uh, judgment and justice for the people. And quite frankly, these two lads, like Eli's boys, were rascals. We see that they were actually perverting justice. Nothing could have been more offensive to their role. They were meant to be the vanguards of God's justice. They were meant to display that God is keen injustice. But we find out that they had been taken bribes. And in Exodus 23 verse 8, we are told that those who take a bribe, it blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are right. This is what Samuel's boys were doing. They were subverting justice. And it hadn't gone, gone unnoticed by the elders of Israel. And the elders come under this pretext of, maybe in the words of the Manic Street preachers, if we tolerate this, maybe our children will be next. As the pretext, they come to Samuel, and they say to Samuel with this radical idea, let us have a king. And the crunch here, friends, is that these elders had forgotten the person who was their king. They had forgotten their true leader, the leader who is full of courage, grace, mercy, and beyond all corruption. They have forgotten their Lord and their God. Now, this can be seen in verse 5 when they ask Samuel to appoint a king. Now, the reasons given to the, the reasons given for the elders wanting this, they seemed collectively as one, like, yeah, this is a good idea. We should appoint a king. This makes sense. But that was really just a pretext. Uh, Samuel's boys were really just a smokescreen. What they truly wanted is crystal clear in verse 20. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And this leads me to our our first point this evening that we're going to spend some time on. We're going to look at the dangers of syncretism. Uh, That sounds complex, but it's not really. In the Old Testament sense of that, what syncretism means is Israel becoming like the Philistine and the nations around them. In the New Testament sense, the dangers of syncretism is the people of God emulating the world rather than becoming Christ-like. Now, these radical elders had put this forward because they wanted to synchronize with the world. They wanted, as verse 20 says, to be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, Israel was never 
ever supposed to be like the nations around them. They were supposed to be distinct, clearly. They were supposed to be salt and light to the other nations. That means attractive. It drew them in. We have this displayed through us in Isaiah 49, where it says, I, shall, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles or the nations around them, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. They were never meant to be like the idolatrous Philistines or the people of Edom that surrounded them. The people of Israel were meant to be unique in the Middle East. They were meant to point to Yahweh as their king. But yet they yearned, this yearning to be like those around them. And it never really ends throughout the Old Testament scriptures, this yearning to be like the people around them. Indeed, this is just the frothing up of this right now in these early chapters of the Old Testament. These people constantly chased after idols, other gods, other nations, and they wanted to be like the people around them. And friends, this is our problem here tonight as well as we sit here. We can recognize that we chase after other things before chasing after Christ. If we sit here tonight and Jesus is Lord in our hearts, we are in his kingdom. We need to recognize that that kingdom doesn't have a border like Israel, and it's made up of every creed, every nation, and every different type of person. But that same desire kind of boils within us sometimes, to be like the world, to yearn after what the world offers. And sometimes this can even slowly bleed into the church. We say things like, Ah, if only we could play the top 40 just in the vestibule as people were coming in, and that would kind of desensitize them. It'd make us look cool and trendy, and it might get people into church. We might say things like, maybe if we cut the sermon down, like David's too long, 40 minutes, let's get him down to five, 10 minutes, and then have coffee and just chat. And before we know it, we've lost the distinctiveness of the church, and what we've really become is a social group who meets to discuss things. The church is meant to be distinct. It is meant to be salt and light. And this can happen in our own personal evangelism as well. I know from experience, I became a Christian at 16. I was a joiner at that time. Um, all my friends were a lot older than me. And when I hit 18, I remember thinking, oh, I'll just go out with the lads and hopefully, you know, interject some gospel into their lives. And we would end up in the pub, and before I know it, I look nothing like I should. All my words fall in deaf ears because there's no distinctiveness between me and my friends. And I walk home from the Capper Cayley thinking to myself, oh, I failed tonight. I failed to be distinct. This is the danger of syncretism where we look exactly like everyone else, whereas our lives are meant to be distinct. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not, not advocating a monastic lifestyle, as in we all retreat to the hills and live in this really holy clique, and we are extremely holy, but we have no one to speak to. We have no one to evangelize, so it's pointless, because we're meant to be in the world, but not off the world. 
So that's one extreme, and the other extreme is syncretism, where we have loads of mates around us, but our lives look no different to theirs. There's no light that shines from us. There's no freedom that our friends can see within us that is only found in Christ. And then we have, as this moves on, that we have forgotten God, and we just blend with our friends. And here in this chapter, that's exactly what Israel were wanting. They were wanting to blend with the nations around them. They had forgotten their Lord and their God. In verse 7, we get to the prophet bringing the demands before God. And we have this heartbreaking response from God, where he allows the people to appoint a king but deals with the prophet in such a loving way. He says, Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, friends, isn't rejection horrible? Especially when we come to love. Being rejected when we love someone can hurt so deep. And God loves his people. This is God who kept them safe in the wilderness, who fed them manna from heaven, who redeemed them out of Egypt, and who dwelt among them in the tabernacle, being rejected. And as I was thinking of this, trying to get an illustration to see this rejection, it's quite hard because it's so close. The only one I could really come up with is a child growing up and at 15 and 16, saying to his parents, I don't love you. I don't want you as my parents. I want that person as my parents. and pursuing that. Can you imagine how much that would cut deep to your parents? But in this moment of rejection, it is so like my Lord and my God to be concerned with the individual. He is addressing Samuel and saying, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. He was concerned for Samuel at this point. So no one can say to me that the God of the Old Testament isn't loving because this is a loving response to his prophet. He loves his children, Israel, even although here we can see they're they're cantankerous and wanting rid of Yahweh. And he is invested in his prophet, Samuel. And friends, that's the same here tonight. Christ is is interested in St. Peter's here tonight, what we do collectively as a church, what our vision is as a people. But he is also extremely interested in who you are, Monday to Monday. He wants to know all your pains, all your hurts. He wants all of you. And he he wants you to come before his throne of grace to receive healing, mercy, and the freedom that is only offered by Christ. And this uh, leads me on to our second point this evening, which we're really going to look from verses 10 to 18. And that is freedom. Because we see that this request for the king has been foreseen and permitted by God rather than approved. Because in Deuteronomy 17, we find that the Lord spoke to Moses and told him what a king of Israel should look like. So the Lord knew this day was coming. He had foreseen it, allowed it, and permitted it. 
rather than approving of it. And God answers the elders of Israel through his prophet Samuel and says to him, tell the Israelites this, that if they want a king, this is the type of king that this, it was going, you're going to have. And the list is extensive, isn't it? But simply put, their sons will soon fight in battles that they did not choose. Their daughters will work for the king. That some of their own wealth will go to support initiatives that they have no clue about. That their land may be seized. That their cattle will be given over to the king. In short, these people were surrendering the freedoms they had now for a king. And we see that the elders speedily agree to this. In their want to be like the nations around them, they are willing to give up their freedom that they had in God. They are willing to be bound up in a monarchy. They are willing to be slaves again, which is the most shocking thing because this is the people who had cried from the oppression in Egypt. This is the people who screamed for a redeemer. And here, they're saying, that's okay, we just want a king, whatever it costs. And they give up their freedom. And we so quickly do the same. That's what I find shocking about my own life. I don't know about you. Is how quickly, even by 10 o'clock some mornings, I feel like in my heart, I'm trying to dethrone Christ because I want to be there. Or I want something in that place. You know, sometimes it's the pursuit of pleasure. But what happens is it becomes so binding. For instance, let me take, the Bible teaches about us being good stewards of what God has given us. To be wise. But I know many Christian families who have wanted something. Uh, Maybe it's a holiday, which is not a bad thing. But what they do to get that, to get that relief, is they take out a credit card. And before they know it, they're living outside their means, and they become enslaved to debt. And that's a constant process. Or the person who one night, for self-gratification, looks online to some pornography to satisfy the lusts that they have. Or maybe the loneliness. And then months, days roll on, and they keep doing it. And then they become so isolated and so alone in their own self-gratification. This pleasure that they thought would be freedom becomes so so encaging around them. And we quickly give up these freedoms. Like Christ says, he warns us clearly about these things in the New Testament. But we surrender them in a moment's notice. What we need to be is like that people of that great hymn that says, reign in me again. I think I've heard you sing it here. It says, Lord, reign me, reign in your power over all my dreams in my darkest hour. So you are the Lord of all I am. So won't you reign in me again over over every thought and over every word. May my life reflect the beauty of my Lord because you mean more to me than earthly things. So, Lord, won't you reign in me again? We need to be people who turn to the freedom of God than rather appoint kings of our own making that so quickly ensnare us. 
And the beauty is the gospel teaches in Romans 8, chapter 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free and the law of sin, from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people are submitting to a yoke of slavery to be like everyone else. But as Paul writes, stand firm. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which... uh, I preached from this morning in Montrose with the lovely people out there. Paul writes again, stand firm and hold fast to our gospel. This is for our own benefit. This is so we don't become ensnared in sin and into bondage. And the harsh bit of this passage is that the people would soon cry out to Yahweh because of their own actions. Friends, we, I remember being a younger uh, man and some wise elder said to me in Kamali, we were going through discipleship of a godly man and it talks about, about saying, put hedges around relationships, especially with guys and girls. And I had just become a Christian. I had a lot of girlfriends at that time. And uh, I remember at the prayer meeting being so vehement, saying, oh, that's a load of rubbish. That's, that's, you know, I can have really close friends with girls. And then I remember meeting them up a few years later and saying, man, that is good advice from the things that have happened to me. You know, the Bible gives us advice. It gives us a path which is best for us. And we can choose to stray for that. But friends, we will pay the cost in that. The people of Israel pay the cost for what they want here. And it's a mystery in God's providence, as in my own life. uh, He took me to the precipice of my own sinning. And I remember physically feeling like I was looking down into a black hole and thinking, Lord, don't let me go down that route. Now, I didn't need to go there in hindsight. The scripture gives me everything I need to live a holy life. The Holy Spirit indwells us and keeps us if we walk in step with him. And it can keep us from bondage. So in conclusion, friends, friends, here tonight, there are two questions that come up from reading this text. Who reigns in your heart tonight? We're sitting here and being honest. Who reigns in your heart tonight? Because it's so subtle, the veiling of our hearts, isn't it? And before we know it, we have a brick wall and we are on the throne of our own hearts. We need to examine that every day. We need to offer our lives up as a living sacrifice to our Lord. And the second question is, are we living a holy life or are we like the nations around us? Are we distinct as the people of God? Do people know we're Christians? We don't need to speak it or shout it from the rooftops, but if someone was to examine your life, would they notice something different? In Acts chapter 2, it said the people's lives witnessed to those around them. 
I often wonder about my own life when I examine it. Would people say that of me? And I really wanted to push home for us tonight that it's trusting in God, keeping our eyes fixed on him, Jesus Christ, our Savior, that will help us live, as John Stott calls it, this double identity, being in the world but not of it. It's only by fixing our eyes on Christ, by trusting in him, can we walk this fine line between being separate from the world or being so indistinguishable from it. So I'm going to change that quote from the American senator to this for a challenge to myself and to all of us. Trust in God is like a muscle. The more we exercise it, the stronger it gets. I sometimes worry about our collective trust for it is growing weaker from disuse. We don't demand it from our leaders and we don't demand it from ourselves. This trust deficit is both our problem and our fault. Friends, here tonight, I would exalt to you to trust in Jesus Christ as your King, your Lord, and your Savior. To move as one of his people in his kingdom. Amen. Let me just pray for us. Our Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would equip us, your people, to live the lives that you have called us to live, O Lord. Help us walk that fine line between being absorbed by the world and removed from it. Lord, we pray that you would impart your strength, your wisdom, and make us courageous in this day and age for you. And Lord, if here tonight we have, like the prodigal son, gone to a faraway land in our hearts, we would pray that you would call us back to yourself, that you would know that because of Jesus Christ and the work of on Calvary, that we, your people, are healed, restored, renewed, and adopted as sons and daughters in your kingdom, O Lord. Help us, help us live that life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.